What if you could complete your MBA in just one year? Thanks to the College of Charleston School of Business, now you can. Their accelerated MBA program condenses a traditional two-year program into one rigorous year, ensuring you not only save a year of tuition and fees, but also re-enter the workforce quickly and graduate with critical business knowledge. U.S. News & World Report recognized the College of Charleston MBA as number one in the country for its job placement rate within three months of graduation. Learn more at mba.cfc.edu. Opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Each Saturday morning at 9, successful business leaders and entrepreneurs from across the Lowcountry talk about what it takes to succeed in business and in life. Now your hosts of Beyond the Business, Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood. And great Saturday morning, Lowcountry. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Business, heard here on 94.3 WSC, or maybe checking out via one of our podcasts. Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or our website at coastalwm.com. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Cox, here with the lovely and talented Leslie Haywood for another edition of Beyond the Business presented by the College of Charleston School of Business. Good morning, Leslie. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Uh, good morning, Eric. And thank you, Low Country and the world now um, for sharing your Saturday morning with us and make sure and continue the fun beyond Saturday mornings. And wherever you are in the world, check out our Facebook page at Beyond the Business or talk to us on Twitter at BTBCHS. I'll tell How you, are you doing Le- this morning? I'm good, Leslie. I was going to tell you, you know, we, we had that show late last year from uh, the gentleman over in Antwerp, Belgium. And yes. uh, interesting enough, since we did that show, we've been getting some emails from folks around the country uh, talking about they'd like to come on the show. And so I think the opportunity that, uh, that unfortunately, COVID has presented is an opportunity for us that uh, allows us to span our horizons beyond the borders of South Carolina and hear entrepreneurship and leadership from all around the country and now all around the world. Pretty exciting. Oh, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yes. How are we going to get these people in studio back when life is normal again? <laughs> that's going to be interesting, right? I guess you and I have to do the road show. That'd be great. So, uh, oh, that's fun. You like that, I know. So, uh, hey, we had another great show over the last couple of weeks. Mr. Jim Garrett was on. Jim is the market president of Collier's International here in Charleston and uh, had a, a great some insight really about uh, the, the world that they've gone through, particularly during COVID. Um, been in the industry a long time and uh, uh, what was your takeaway from uh, Jim's show last week? Well, speaking of insight, it was fun to get a little of that on his take on the, the foreign investor in Charleston. And by foreign, I mean, just hasn't lived here for more than 10 years. And he said that uh, a lot of people erroneously think that just by looking at the map, that Charleston has got so much space, uh, you know, to be developed. And, you know, what people don't realize is, nope, that's wetlands. Nope, that's marsh. Nope, can't touch that. And how expensive it is um, to actually do do business in Charleston. And so that was that was that was interesting. I had forgotten that, you know, some people just don't know the market down here. Certainly not your same old Charleston, right? Um, And I loved his quote last week about in chaos, there is opportunity. And certainly, we've all gone through a lot of chaos in 2020. And hearing how they are thinking about 
kind of revolutionizing their model, uh, obviously being in the commercial workspace going forward uh, post-COVID. And so a great show. Again, if you if you missed it, go check it out on, on our podcast. You can go to CoastalWM.com, Spotify, or go to Apple Podcasts and just put in Beyond the Business. And so I'm excited today, as I always am, but really fired up. I know we're going to have a great show today. I'm going to tell you, this is a gentleman I've gotten to know here recently. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seatbelt. He's going to bring a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. Make sure you get your coffee ready to roll. Uh, we have um, a great show ahead. Mr. Richard Hearn. Uh, Richard uh, is the CEO of FPX, which is a B2B selling cloud system. And, and Richard, first of all, just I uh, want to say thank you for being a part of the show and uh, joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Eric and Leslie. Uh, I uh, look forward to uh, having a conversation with you. I well, know. And um, oh, go ahead, go Leslie. Go ahead, Eric. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, before say we it. get jumping in, uh, okay. Richard, give us a quick little um, nugget on FPX so uh, folks that are listening will have a little insight to what you actually do. Yeah, FPX has got a long history. It's uh, It's been around for about 35 years, and uh, it's it's a little bit complex to understand, but uh, it, we're, we've, we specialize in the manufacturing space, and we help salespeople in the manufacturing space configure, price, and quote the, uh, the things that they sell, things like aircraft engines, complex pump systems, you know, airplanes, buses, ambulances, and those are really, really complex things, and automating that process is kind of the way of the future. And kind of an interesting tidbit about FPX, um, back in 2016, it was acquired by a private equity firm that was founded by Steve Young, the Hall of Fame quarterback. So Steve Young is actually on the on the board of directors, and uh, I get to see him just about every quarter. That's cool. That's that cool. cool. Oh, my so, gosh. By the way, I, Leslie, I'm something excited. tells me there's going to be a lot of cool opportunities throughout this show this week and next week. So I think we're just getting started. That's awesome. Well, before we get into that, I know I just want to jump into that. Um, like the show, the tagline, people you know, stories you don't, we're going to go back a little bit and talk about your upbringing. Can you give us a little flavor of where you're from and what life was like in those early, early years? Sure. I grew up uh, in northern Indiana, in the cornfields of Indiana. Uh, my hometown is uh, uh, about 300 people, Leesburg, Indiana, on the outskirts of, of Warsaw, Indiana, which is it's, it's probably about 15,000 people, but it's known to be the orthopedic capital of the world. So companies like Biomet and Depew and Zimmer, and if you've got a, an, an implant, you likely have an implant from Warsaw, Indiana. I went to Warsaw High School. And so give us an idea of what the household was like. Uh, mom and dad, what did they do? And, and siblings and all that good stuff. Yeah, so we uh, Leesburg is just on the outskirts of uh, of farmland. We uh, we've had a farm in in Leesburg, Indiana, since uh, 1868, and so the family's always lived on the farm. Um, we actually just sold it last year. It's now out of the family. But uh, Dad was um, the son of a farmer who decided that he wanted to uh, uh, go to law school. And, uh, and he ended up in law school down in Texas. Um, Mom is, uh, was an orphan um, down, in, uh, down in Florida and then moved up to Indiana and met my father uh, in Indianapolis uh, when she was 19 years old. So um, that's kind of the, the upbringing that I had. Um, they, uh, they were, they've been married for, were married for about 50 years. 
Um, I had an older brother um, who's also a lawyer. I was always asked, are you going to be a lawyer? And my response was always, I'm the kind of guy who needs lawyers. Um, so, so I ended up going being an entrepreneur. Um, I also have a younger sister who lives out in New Jersey now. She's got a family of three. Um, my older brother, get this, has five children under the age of 15. And uh, so he's got he's got quite the experience in front of him. I always joke. I've, we've got two children ourselves that are off in college. And and I'm, I'm like, Ed, you have no idea what's, what's wow. in front of you. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. So what kind of student were you? Um, you know, the were you a good student? Were you more athletic? Were you trouble? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I uh, you did was, all of it. All of it. So school was always easy for me. I never studied. Um, I always joked I never read a book until I went to college, which is probably true. Look at the books behind me. I I've kind of changed course, but um, it just school came easy for me. I ended up going to Purdue um, to be an engineer. My uh, my my parents said, "Look, you can go anywhere you'd like, but we'll pay for it if you go to Purdue." So uh, I I turned down uh, MIT in Michigan and uh, and and went to Purdue because it was two thousand dollars a semester um, in state tuition. And uh, that's when I had to start reading books, though. It became a little bit more difficult at Purdue. I went from straight A's in, in high school to, to B's and C's my freshman year, which is kind of weed out at Purdue for engineering, and then got it back straight and, and kind of finished on A's on the way out. But uh, school's kind of always come easy for me. Math particularly is easy. I struggled a little bit with reading, mainly because I didn't read books and, until I caught on. And, and as you can see behind me, kind of figured that out along the way. And so, Richard, as a youngster... Uh, through middle school, high school years, was there a vision you had that when you grew up that you, you knew exactly what you wanted to be, or was that kind of wide open at that at that time? It was wide open. My parents just kind of encouraged us to kind of do whatever we wanted. Um, it's funny they never really said you're going to college, but it was always kind of expected. Mom, you know, mom ended up with a, as a psychology degree and had her own psychology child psychology practice. I like to say that's why I turned out so well, since mom was a child psychologist. But um, so well rounded but, you know, and balanced. Yeah, right. Well rounded and balanced. Um, you know, I. You know, you, you the other two things you mentioned, I did play a little sports early on. I, I ended up uh, started boat racing when I was nine years old. Dad was a boat racer also. Um, quick story. My brother, you know, was a boat racer. His kids are boat racers. My kids are boat racers. My sister got into Sports Illustrated when she was 16 years old for uh, for being uh for, for actually beating me in boat racing, which was kind of cool. So um, we ended up doing more racing than sports once we picked that up. Um, and then in terms of trouble, I was, I was definitely trouble. I was the one you, uh, you weren't allowed to hang around with. And uh, which was always, uh, you know, something for me to, to try to prove everybody that uh, I really was the kid you should have been hanging around with. I know there's a lot Clearly. there. Maybe you can unpack some of that. <laughs> so so you, you head off to Purdue, like you said, to, to uh, study mechanical engineering. What was the thought there that, hey, once I exit college, I'm going to go pursue a, a career in what? I didn't really know. Um, in college, I, uh, you know, engineering was just easy for me, but I never really liked it. Um, so I started listening to uh, a lot of books on tape and motivational books and and things like that, and uh, just eventually decided I wanted to go work in in the Fortune 500 area, and I wanted to be an executive at a Fortune 500 company, and so that kind of picked that up as my senior year. 
um, interviewed at Procter and Gamble and, and got that job. And, and that's kind of, it, it headed me down that path. Um, I eventually figured out I did not want to be a fortune 500 CEO. Um, so I left Procter and Gamble four years later. It's kind of an interesting story. I, I, uh, I had, there are only like 200 directors at Procter and Gamble. It's a big company, as you know, I had 10 of them sit down with me when I resigned and they said, you don't want to do this. And I'm like, what do you mean I don't want to do this? They said, nobody resigns from Procter and Gamble. You could retire here in 40 years with five million dollars. And I said, well, number one, Steve Case left Procter and Gamble and started AOL. Steve Ballmer left Procter and Gamble and went to Microsoft. I'm not going to work for you guys for for 40 years, and five million just isn't enough. So I'm out of here. But uh, that's that's how I got out of my Fortune 500 career. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you do after that? I, I uh, called my wife on the way home and and uh, <laughs> said, uh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to I'm going to go. This was in the mid to late 90s. The dot com era was kind of kicking off. And I said, I'm going to go figure out how to help companies go online and use this crazy thing called the World Wide Web. And she said, OK, good luck. And that's kind of that kind of launched my entrepreneurial career. So, so this is a moment we love to highlight on our show, Richard. That is the moment where you know somebody makes the leap into the entrepreneur waters. And I know that's it's been a while, uh, but if you go back and you think about that time where you and, and Susan, I don't know if you all had kids at that time or not, um, but you're making this leap from corporate America, you know, benefits and a salary. What was it like emotionally to be thinking about making that quote risky move into entrepreneurial world? Um, so we would have been married. We did not have kids. I left in 97. We had our first child in 98. Um, it's, it, it, uh, it was, it was weird. I kind of think back on it and, and, and feel really blessed, if you will, that my wife didn't say, what are you doing? You're an idiot. She said, let's go do it. Right. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, having that kind of support is really, really important to be able to go make that kind of jump. Um, you know, we were in the middle of, you know, 98, we had our first child, in, uh, 2000, we had our second child, bought our first house in 2000. Uh, I ended up going to uh, Ohio State to get my MBA starting in, in 1999, I believe, in the evenings. So a lot was going on. Um, I just, it seemed normal to me. I just, I didn't know anything else. You know, I was always trying to figure out, um, you know, how I could go, you know, just, do something great or, or help people out and try to make money along the way. And, you know, I never really thought about everything that I was doing at the same time and how it might be a little too much. I know. I love ignorance and youth. I remember yeah, those exactly days. what it is. Yes, I love it. I love it. So, what did that first company look like? Tell us a little bit about that first venture. Yeah, our first client was Principal Financial. So, why Principal Financial, a large, you know, large financial services company would would uh, contract with with me? Um, it was is maybe I just did a good job of selling myself, but I convinced them that I could help them, you know, build their websites and. Uh, and and they they gave us they gave us the opportunity and I kind of built it from there and added another person and added another person and found another company to help me out and we merged together found another company to help us out and we merged together and that all happened probably in the first nine months and uh, and then it just kind of took off it, it was a it was you got to remember the dot com 
era was really high flying. I mean, there was way more work than there were people to do the work. And so it's funny, we were, we were charging, you know, bill rates like $400 an hour. Um, and, uh, you still can't, you can't charge that, you know, today. Um, but 25 years ago we were doing it. So it was kind of easy to figure out if you had the dream and you could sell the vision to, uh, to find clients, the harder part was how do you build a business? How do you attract people? How do you get them to do the good work? And so Richard, as you're going along in, in this entrepreneur venture, you're scaling, you're growing, you're in the fast lane. As we all do in life, we learn probably more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. What were some of those mistakes early on that you reflect back now on and maybe can give some wisdom to our listeners and help them avoid? Yeah, one of my advice that I give to entrepreneurs is I've never seen a company uh, grow too slowly and fail, but I've seen lots of companies grow too fast and fail. And so that com- first company that I created, we went from zero to 35 million in about 18 months. And this again, remember, this is consulting. So you have to hire people and get them to do good work. And uh, we just grew too fast. Quality went really bad. Um, we couldn't make payroll. And eventually we sold it, um, sold it to a public company for next to nothing, which ended up becoming nothing because I sold it for all stock instead of all cash. Um, but we just grew too fast. We just had, you know, our, our eyes were bigger than our stomach and we just chewed off too much. And what were, what were your thoughts when you were going through that? What were you thought, what, what did, what were you going to do next? Did you have something else lined up? Yeah, so that was during the time when we were doing custom software development, and I could see the writing was on the wall that this enterprise software world was on its way. And so I was kind of happy to get out of it. It was a little bit of a mess, bad quality, can't cash flow it, custom software development. And so when the company wanted to buy it, we were pretty happy to give it to them. Um, And I left right away and started back over just learning from those mistakes. I mean, I, I literally didn't put a dollar in my pocket from the sale of that company. Um, but I had tremendous experience from hire the right people, put processes in place, drive good quality, don't grow too fast. And I was able to put that together for my second business. You put intellectual capital in your pocket, right? It was uh, very expensive. <laughs> Eric, very, very expensive. expensive. <laughs> but, uh, so, so as we go through life, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the, the people that sort of shape and form us along the way. And so when you look back at particularly your early years in entrepreneurship, Richard, are there some folks you can point to that you believe their wise counsel and wisdom was instrumental in your success? Yeah, of course, you never really realize it at the time. Um, but when you look backwards, you start to recognize, you know, who made marks on your life. I mean, clearly, you know, my father and my mother, um, you know, did. Um, my father was um, he, he was uh, the kind of guy that said, you know, do it right and do it right the first time. And that was uh you know, doing it right the first time was, you know, a lesson that I learned early on. Um, and then for my mother, she was just always encouraging to go try it. Just give it a shot. Like, see if you like it. As opposed to, you know, I think a lot of people get held back by their family because their family can't understand the path that one wants to take and then kind of talks them out of it. My mother was always like, go give it a shot. If you fail, you fail. We can start back over. Um, and so I think those those were probably um, the two most important people in my life. I, I suspect most people say that about their parents, but um, they'd really had an impact on me. Now, how did your second company differ from the first? What did you do differently? We and were you in direct competition? Years. 
we took 14 years to get back to 35 million instead of wow. 18 months. Um, so we just grew much more slowly. We made sure we hired the right people. We made sure that we were focused in the right space. Um, we made sure we brought in outside advisors to say, hey, here's some things that you're going to run into um, before you ever get there. Um, and we just, you know, we kind of took our time. Um, also, I, the, one of the best advice I got from an advisor I had was build a company you can live with or you probably will forever. And so he just encouraged me to build a company that I would be happy with and proud of. And, uh, you know, if somebody comes along and wants it sometime, then, you know, maybe you could sell it to them, but don't, don't build a company to sell it. The first one that we built, we were trying to build it to flip it and just see if we could put that much money in our pocket. We ended up putting nothing in our pocket. The second what, one, we built it to keep and, and we ended up putting a little bit of dollars in our pocket. What, a, what an amazing sort of testament too to think about. Um, knowing your personality, right? You're a driver, you're a go-go guy, and thinking about that first venture, you, you, you knock it out of the park, 18 months, you build it quick, and then you have to flip the switch and go to a model where it's, it's, it's very deliberate, and you take your time to build it. And so, how did you handle that from a personality standpoint, knowing that you're, you're I'm, I'm sure, chomping at the bit, wanting to see growth, but realizing responsible growth is the best path to go? It was hard. You know, some of the mistakes, I'm not going to say we, we, we definitely made mistakes along the way in the 14 years. I think one of the biggest mistakes I made was trying to do too many things, get into too many areas. Um, and we got stuck at, at 20 million. There's a huge glass ceiling for in the technology space at 20 million and 100 people. You're, you're, there's a great book out there by Doug Tatum called uh, No Man's Land. And, and one of the phrases in there is you, you, no man's land is when you're too big to be small, but you're too small to be big. And it was really hard for us to get through there. And so I thought at the time, the way to get through there was create other businesses and almost kind of run multiple businesses. That was the exact wrong thing to do. Um, <laughs> it was the exact wrong thing. And it wasn't until I consolidated those all back down and we said, we're going to do this and we're going to be really good at this, that we broke through that glass ceiling of no man's land and really kind of took off. And then how did that company come to an end? What, what happened after that? Somebody wanted it more than we did. <laughs> <laughs> did you make any money this time? <laughs> we did. We made tremendous amounts of money. Um, it, we got to the point. So I, I ended up selling that firm. It was a, a company called Crown Partners. Um, we were founded in the Delta Crown Room and thought we ought to be partners. So we got really creative and called ourselves Crown Partners. And uh, uh, we were kind of a systems integrator digital agency. And then back in, in the you know, 2013, 2014 timeframe, a bunch of consulting companies were trying to become digital agencies and a bunch of digital agencies were trying to become consulting companies. And we had become that combination. And so the, of the five largest digital agencies in the world, um, four of them were really eager to acquire us. And I had an advisor. Uh, we were actually not trying to sell it. We were trying to get outside capital to grow it. I had finally gotten the cookie cutter right. And I knew it was time to bring an outside capital to really take off. And uh, then, you know, when I got an advisor, he brought in some strategics and the strategics clearly wanted it more than we did. And uh, just were willing to pay, honestly, pay more than what it was worth. And so, uh, we, we picked the one that I thought was going to be the right future for the business, which ended up at Publicis Razorfish. 
Um, and so we sold it to publicists who jammed us together with Razorfish, and we became the global commerce arm for Razorfish, which is a digital agency, one of the largest digital agencies out there. So in our in our last few minutes is unfortunately we're running out of time, believe it or not. But t- uh, talk about the fact that you you make an exit, right? You've been an entrepreneur, you make an exit, you've done all these great things, and then you kind of switch gears. And in 2016, you go to work with IBM. Uh, talk about that role and why the the switch to that. And it was a fun switch. So, so first of all, it's a lot of entrepreneurs think when they sell their company, they just leave and go somewhere else. It doesn't work like that. You sell your company, you're pretty well stuck into the company you sell to for two or three years. So I spent two years, two and a half years with Razorfish, helping them really make sure that they could continue to grow it. We tripled the business with Razorfish inside of three years. Um, but I eventually got a call from the chief marketing officer of IBM at the time, Michelle Peluso. And, and Michelle said, hey, do you want to come run this $2 billion software? software, you know, arm that we have. And I said, well, well, gosh, I, I know the space well, and it's all marketing, commerce, supply chain, order management software. I've worked with every one of your competitors. I've never worked with IBM, um, and I've never run a software company. But if you're okay with that, I'm happy to come on board and help you turn this thing around. And and uh, long story short, I, I came on board kind of mid-2016, and that business was was shrinking and losing lots of money. We got it back to, to growth and, and making lots of money. And, and that was kind of the story for me to get back into Fortune 5 and recognize yet again, I didn't want to be in Fortune 500. <laughs> and so well, I ended up being there after two and a half years and going back to the entrepreneurial world, which which got me to FBX. And, and so in our final kind of segment here for, for this morning, talk about that experience for a minute. Jumping back in after being an entrepreneur for so long, what was it quality characteristics experience-wise that made you realize that wasn't the, the space for you? Well, I'm glad I did it. So first of all, I don't want anybody to think that I'm not glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. Um, You know, I think it's, you know, entrepreneurs to some extent get caught up in um, small business and and not understanding how biz- businesses work and and going to IBM is a global 100 plus billion dollar company and and running uh, you know organizations in in 60 plus countries I learned a tremendous amount not just about how to run software companies but how to run at scale it's how to put the right management in place it's how to get the right controls in place and I took a tremendous amount from you know from that experience I helped IBM turn that business around and so I'm proud of that. But at the same time, it helped me a lot. And it actually helped me get to where I'm at today. Because when I decided that, you know, two and a half years or two and a half more years for Fortune 500, Fortune 500 was uh, um, was enough. I went back to the private equity firms and said, I want to go do something for you. And I've learned not only how to be an entrepreneur, but how to run at scale. And uh, that's really helped me at FPX. Well, we're certainly looking forward to coming back next week, Richard, and hearing the rest of that story and how you re-entered sort of the entrepreneur waters again. Again, Richard Hearn, thank you for your uh, time and story today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Eric. I, I had a good time. Again, you've been listening to Richard Hearn, CEO of FPX here on Beyond the Business and Low Country. Look forward to having you back next Saturday morning for the rest of his story here on 94.3 WSC. And until next Saturday, Low Country. Have a blessed week. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Business, brought to you by the College of Charleston School of Business. The College of Charleston School of Business, where students are beyond ready to work, they're ready to make an impact. Tune in next Saturday morning at 9 for Beyond the Business, hosted by Eric Cox and Leslie Haywood, and heard exclusively on News Radio 94.3 WSC. 
The College of Charleston School of Business is recognized among the top 30 colleges for studying business abroad by the Business Research Guide. With nine undergraduate majors, 10 minors, and six concentration areas, an honors program in business, and master's programs in business and accountancy, the College of Charleston School of Business has more than 3,000 students enrolled. Their students are ready to work, and they're ready to make an impact. For more info, visit sb.cfc.edu.